Jeannie Patel Thompson, international best-selling author, health product formulator, horse listener, earth singer, mother, medicine woman, elephant acolyte, and regenerative farmer. This is the Jeannie Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're talking with Orianne Lee Johnson, the author of this fabulous book, The Geography of Belonging. The cover, Oriane, is so beautiful. You almost want to have it out to look at it. <laughs> you, you must have been very pleased when you saw this cover. It was quite a process, actually. I asked my Zimbabwean friend, who's a filmmaker and a graphic designer, to do the design. And when he said to me, if you ask me, you are asking me, the African, and you have to put aside your Western mind and your way of seeing things and trust me. Right. So that was a journey, I have to say. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's very graphically unique, but I, I absolutely love it. Beautiful. So for those of you who, who don't know, do you want to give us a quick overview of, give us the, give us the cocktail party synopsis of what this book is about? Horses called me to Africa. I went there thinking I was just exploring the wilderness. And then I fell in love and returned and returned and returned. So the story weaves together my experiences of um, the blatant uh, racial prejudice I found in post-colonial Africa, Southern Africa, which opened my eyes to what's going on here more clearly. I don't put that part in the book. So it's exploring the wilderness on horseback. And I have two missions. My, one of my missions, as is yours, is to educate people about the value of horses to humans beyond the normal, the normal or the traditional. So, you know, that's the main thing that you and I share is that awareness and that mission. And the second is that when I asked my Zimbabwean friends, most of the book takes place in Zimbabwe, my Africa journey began in Mozambique. I, when I asked them, what could I do as one foreign visitor? They said to a person, Shona, White, Tonga, and Debele, and they said, show the world tell your friends, show the world what the news media does not, that our land and our country are beautiful, that we are happy, despite, you know, the trials and tribulations. And our culture is alive and vibrant. Wonderful. Well, I think you've really conveyed that admirably in the book. And one of the things that I was most impressed with is your honesty in the book. Like you're not, you're not just writing to tell the pretty story or the love or the stuff that puts you in the best light. Like you're very um, authentically honest with your own process, your own um, things that are happening and the people around you. And I think that's what makes this book kind of elevates it to the next level, because as I'm reading it, I have a trust in you because you're not just talking about the stuff that is pretty and nice and puts you in the best light, like you're telling the full story. I just have to say a hummingbird is right, just flew. Did you see it? I flew didn't. In. It's anyway, beautiful. that's a beautiful perception, Jeannie. Thank you very much. Well, I've read quite a few memoirs and 
you can always tell when the person is whitewashing or sugarcoating <laughs> and and then you're like what's the point now i don't trust you because you're not telling me the full story and all of us who live life know it's messy it's complicated. We're not sure. We have doubts. We're second guessing. And I love that you've put all this in the book with a rawness and uh, just the, that ability and willingness to tell the whole story. And I think that takes it to the next level. It's really gratifying to know that you absolutely read into it in that way. And it was tough. And I worked hand in hand with an editor. And she's saying, you can't leave us out of that scene and go to the next, you have to take us right there. And I remember a time or two just starting to cry. And <laughs> I can't do that. But there's, as you know, there's something so valuable in becoming more and more transparent. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in being willing to have that vulnerability and honesty to tell all the sides and and not worry about how it makes you look and that, oh, wow, I look really confused here. Guess what I was? Because life is confusing sometimes and life is messy sometimes. And that's what I really appreciate, especially in your relationship with us. Is it Stephen or Stefan? Stephen, yeah. Stephen, yeah. Your relationship with him is... As someone who's lived on four different continents, and I was born in Kenya myself, right. yeah, lived there for five years and then got kicked out for political reasons. But um, I totally appreciated your reality of of depicting what was happening between the two cultures right. and this attempt to kind of merge something that, you know, there couldn't be any more disparities on one level between you and then, but at the soul level and the connection level, there was such truth and there was such, such a bonding and such a deep connection that really came through in the book. And so I love that, that that's one of the themes that, well, possibly the main theme that is, I don't know if it's the main theme. I found a lot of, I thought I found you had several themes that you wove and you developed all of them really fully. And I really enjoyed that variety. And also your perceptions about the, oh, how do you even phrase it? The economic disparity, but also how, you know, that sounds like, oh, economic disparity. No, that is like a tree with 50 million mycorrhizal roots that pervade mm -hmm. through everything. Mm -hmm. And, and are a part of everything. And then how do you dance with that, especially when you're the one who is in the more privileged position across the board, mm -hmm. except that you yourself are not, like you yourself are <laughs> very, you know, just a real, you're, and you know inside yourself that you're no different, but all of the perceptions and all of those roots and structures that thread through everything are designed to separate. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, I love that you managed to portray that in all its complexity in the book. Beautiful. Well, I think you're a very perceptive reader. <laughs> I've been, I, I reading is one of my favorite things. Okay. So I have a bunch of stuff marked in here that I want to, and I'm going to give the page number for everyone in case they already have the book or they want to get the book and follow along. 
So I just have some questions. I want you to expand on some things and maybe dive in a bit. Um, on page 13, you say, and then I remember when I've made a life-size decision in the past, like leaving my marriage, usually there's a pushback. Something disturbing happens that on the surface says you've made the wrong choice. But in my experience, it's usually a test of resolve. How committed are you to this choice? Mm-hmm. I love that because I, I think it's something that, again, like all of us who have done a lot of work on manifesting and holding intention and vision boarding and all these other things, right? This aspect of it is not talked about. Right. Because it, what's focused on is, is the intentioning and the magic and the flow and everything flows and everything comes. But when it's huge, as you said, there's always that pushback. There's a kickback mm-hmm. that happens. Do you have any sense of why that is? Why does, why does the universe, why does it work that way? Such a good question. um, I have a response. Do you have a response? I wonder if it's because we're in 3D earth reality and the overarching paradigm here is yin and yang. So us having this expectation and what's put out by, you know, success coaches and abundance coaches is that You just have to get the formula right and you can be in abundance and flow pretty much all the time. Magic 24 (laughs) seven, except that that denies the reality of the third dimension paradigm that all is light and darkness, all is yin and yang. So it cannot physically in this realm be all one way. It can't be just beautiful and, and flowing. And then I think the second component to that is when we ask for what we want or we vision with our very strong intention, we don't know all the facts. We have our idea of what that thing is going to look like and feel like. (laughs) And then the reality hits and we're like, I didn't think about that. And I didn't think about that. I was just focused on the positives of this thing that I wanted to manifest again, right? Forgetting that there's always a yin and yang forgetting that there's always two sides to the coin. Mm-hmm. So that would be what I would say. As you're talking, um, two things occur to me. One is I work with the tarot and the tree of life, the Kabbalah. And the, the uh, one of the, the principles, the dynamics of that is we have an intention. If it's sincere, the universe responds. And the in what you're talking about the pushback or the the shamanic test is how sincere are you how sincere Mm. was i to go was i just going for a little volunteer vacation but my i was called forward like pulled forward and then this is what what came so it was a test of the the depth of my intention without me even knowing it and in a Buddhist retreat I was doing, I th- actually, I think it says this in the book, a Buddhist retreat at Hollyhock with Tammy Simon, you know, who mm-hmm. is the head of Sounds True recordings. 
audio wisdom. And I hadn't had a living sense of Buddhism before. She said, our sincerity is met by an equal force of sincerity from the lineage, which mm -hmm. brought the lineage, the beloved, the ancestors, the unseen, the divine alive for me in a way that I, I hadn't I'd certainly experienced, but not conceived of it before. So I think it's an important test of, of resolve, really. That's so interesting. And, and again, the ancestors is another theme that's woven throughout this book and something that we here in the, in the new West often forget about. We're just like, it doesn't even enter into our picture. And it reminds me, I was with my um, herd one day and Montaro, my herd leader came up and he just started licking one of my hands. And I was like, and at the same time, I became aware of all these thoughts that I'd been thinking in my head about a couple of my barn workers that were there, like really like, you know, critical disparaging thoughts. And as he licked my hand, I was like, wait a minute, whose thoughts are these? Like, I don't actually feel or think this, but they've been playing like a tape recording in my brain and creating a really negative yuck energy. And as he licked my hand, I was like, okay, whose, whose thoughts are these? And then because Montaro's working with me at the energetic realm, he, he kind of, it's like a door, a window open. And I saw, oh, it's my father's lineage going all the way back, multiple generations. Mm -hmm. This is the negative patterning and imprint that's come down and it's ready to be released. It's ready to be transformed because I can Right. And, and in that ancestral line, we need someone in the genetic ancestral line who's willing to do that work. And then everybody, you know, often they say seven generations back and seven generations forward gets released and gets brought into healing and, a, you know, just a, a bigger sense of freedom and possibility and being able to let go of all those old things that we don't realize are controlling us but they actually are exerting quite a degree of control and influence. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, more traditional cultures, like in your book, the ancestors are a big part of it. People in Zimbabwe are always aware. They're always referencing. They're always consulting and honoring the ancestors. And here we're just like, <laughs> Well, perhaps, well, for me, you can, my ancestral lineage is not in this land. Mine neither. No, there you go. So that's a that's a whole other topic. The displacement. Anyway, that's another topic. That's true. That's Our forebears. Okay, my next thing I want to bring out. You said on page sixty six, horseback riding in the eastern drifts of the Kalahari sands with elephants and lions engenders a strength that takes root in the body never to leave. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the concept, especially as our world becomes increasingly more digital. Right. And people are like, why do I need to travel there? I just watched a big video about it. Right. You know, and um, oh, well, I'm, I'm having an alternate an AI experience of that reality. And this whole understanding that there's a visceral, reality that occurs can you can you talk about 
how, I don't know if you can explain in words, but how did that strength feel? Like, can you, can you go into that? Yes. Um, it brought me into a different perception of humans and nature. So now when I hear someone say, I need to connect with nature, as you know, we are nature. So all the, the separateness and the distinctions dissolve being there on, on a horse. And I'm, I'm aware of talking to you that a lot of the book is about riding and that's not your approach. However, I took this somatic visceral orientation because my own, um, uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice is a somatic practice, which you found in the book, and any kinds of therapy counseling that I've ever done has always been through the body. So to be on the horse with that attunement, physical attunement, and then the horse's hoofs are on the earth, and then there's the elephant hoofs, and then you know, perhaps you've been close to an elephant as well, being on foot and an elephant comes close with a very experienced guide. And then the guide says, can you feel that? And then you feel it in your body, that energetic precedent, just like when we go to, you know, when we're bringing someone new in to meet the horses or the herd, and we do some energetic tuning in and have them approach the horse, feeling what happens in their body and when they come up against the energy bubble or field of the horse. So what happened for me was there is no distinction so that there was nothing to be afraid of because, you know, when I look back at the videos of myself on the horse, either alongside some giraffes or with elephants, not that far away and we're moving we're all moving together all our feet are on the ground does that respond to your question mm-hmm. what's your are you able to um verbalize the difference in what the energy field of a horse feels like versus the energy field of an elephant well <laughs> generally with the horses they're more used to people so you can do a kind of slow approach whereas with an elephant um that was very unusual that one would come within a car length of me but it was vibratory Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just I felt it in my body. It was as if that was emanating from the elephant. And the elephant is bigger. And as I said in the book, what about an elephant? When I'm sleeping with the horses in their field like this and the stars in the sky streaming like this. And then what about elephants? What about baobab trees? You've, you know, your body's been on the motherland mm-hmm. and it, it will always be in you, you know, for five, those five years, mm-hmm. those four beginnings. Um, and, so. and I, I have re-experienced a past life. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, perhaps most of us who've had any amount of incarnations have had an incarnation in Africa. 
Mm -hmm. you know, I had that feeling of the red earth, the mother. Um, so interesting. The other thing that, that reminds me of something I was so impressed with throughout the book is your ability to sleep anywhere and eat anything. I was oh. like, oh my gosh, you are so blessed. That is such incredible freedom to have. I, I, if I envy something, I, my husband's like that too. And all of my kids, thank God, they all got that from him. And I'm the only one who's like, I can't sleep. I'm not sleeping. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and bizarrely for me too, it's like, if I try to sleep on the earth, there's no sleep happening for me because there's, it's so busy there, so, Yeah, all the time. It's like, mm -hmm. I can't get it to drop to the point where I can actually go to sleep until it's like four or five in the morning. And then finally, okay, now I can sleep. <laughs> I think I understand that. I think I probably didn't sleep in the bush. You're, we just go into a different state that's, you know, you're with that streaming, whatever buzz. And it didn't matter because you were getting so much prana or chi from. Exactly. The, That's it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So you're not going like, oh, I only got three hours sleep. I feel like an absolute, you know, piece of crap. No, thing. you're like, ah, feeling okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's. That's what's happened to me since I bought this 160 acre ranch. And I, I think the first, uh, I don't even know how many visits, like six or eight, I barely slept, but I woke up ready to go and did a full day with no problem every single day. And right. it was, it just is what it is. So interesting. And I noted that you were in residence there rather than simply visiting and to be there without interruption or returning to, I mean, you don't exactly live in the city in the lower mainland, but where there's other interferences, I've just felt so happy for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's such, it's such an interesting journey because, you know, and again, that's where we're like, well, this is my dream and my vision. Okay. Well, now you're in it. Oh, <laughs> oh, didn't think about that. Didn't think about that. Didn't realize that. Um, and there's, there's tests, like you said, there's pushback to say, really, are you really all in? Because what I feel here is that before the full potential of what's here is going to come forward, I need to be tested to see if I'm all in. You know, because, because the other energies and beings don't want to engage at that level. If I'm then going to do a runner or if I'm going to be like, actually I can't handle this. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's a bit of, of a testing period to say, you know, are you sure not to see if I'm good enough or I'm no, it's all about, understand. is yeah. this actually what you want? And, and you're coming into a co-creative relationship. Yes. Yeah. With this and person. are you willing to um, go through what you're going to need to go through to co-create at this level. Right. And remember, it was probably exactly a year ago that I was there for a week. Mm -hmm. We missed each other. And yes. uh, 
I had just left and the Coquihalla fell apart just as you were about to come right. and the Coquihalla fell apart. That's right. Because well, my horses did. wouldn't get on the trailer because they were like, yes. we don't need to be on the Coquihalla when it, the whole thing is collapsing. I remember that post that you did. And yes. I felt so fortunate that I had had that week beforehand. Yes. Yeah. And felt, you know, I spent the days outside walking everywhere and lying, I have to say, lying on the, on the earth a lot of that time. And just I love, feel- that's another thing I love in your book is all your stories about lying on the earth. <laughs> and you're just like, just like, where are you? Okay. There's Ariane. She's down. <laughs> I think it's the most fantastic thing. I think it's, you know, everyone is now really familiar with earthing and grounding, but you're putting your whole body and often belly face down and just sinking into the earth. And I love the way you tell all those stories mm-hmm. and of, of what happens to you and how beautiful it is and how much it helps you to do that. And I think just by telling, I can't imagine someone reading this book and not going out and lying on the earth. Uh, do you know, to- I, yes, I think the right, when, as you know, you write, writing a memoir, one has to, at least I read put myself back into the experience so that I can describe it again. So it really digests it and metabolizes it in a, in a more profound way, which is the value of writing a memoir with that kind of transparency, which is how you write your, you know, the things that you post and other writing that you do. Yeah. And I think that's where the need to write comes in because it's like, you have the physical experience of it the first time and that has a meaning and a significance and there's a transmission and there's experience and transformation. But for me as a writer, as one of my core archetypes, then when I write about that, it goes to a whole new level for me. So it's really critical. And it's something that I need to do as part, like it's like my experience is not complete. I haven't gone to all the levels of that experience until I write about it. And whether that means I write about it in my journal or for public sharing doesn't matter, but I have to write about it. Right. Yeah. So you, this is a a beautiful part here where you're with one of the horses. Um, Kosan, is that how you say it? Kosan stands over me as she would a new foal, her horsey smell bringing me back from a fearfully imagined future. The dark feeling inside me evaporates and my sense of self falls open like the petals of a blooming flower. She continues breathing into me and I'm filled with a deep conviction to make life choices and decisions based on arriving at the end of my time on earth without regret. Mm -hmm. People ask me, what are your regrets? And I say, I have none. And they're astounded because I've all, I think I've lived enough lifetimes and I've re-experience those lifetimes where I've seen myself hit similar blocks again and again. And like, I I screwed it again. I didn't push through. Oh my God. And then I'm like, come back next lifetime, try again, hit the same place. Oh my God. I tanked again. And, you know, so for me, for this lifetime, I'm like, I'm not tanking. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care how difficult it is. I am moving forward. And so I kind of came in with that sense and that directive for this incarnation. And so I literally have no regrets because a mistake is a learning curve. And, and I wonder 
how would our whole world be different if everyone had this view that you, now, did you have it before this experience with the horse? Did you have a sense of that before? Or was this like a whole new aha moment for you that just came through really strongly? Um, I had it before, and yet that experience with Kosin, which was here on Cortez Island where I am now, was the most, it wasn't just a mind thought and an intention. It was, this is what it's like to be here in, in that way. And mostly it's about saying yes. So saying yes is a practice. I haven't regretted anything that I, it's not, like you say, yes, I'm going to do this, but where you feel the yes and you go rather than contract. Yes, exactly. And be willing. And I find a lot of times feeling that yes and going involves being willing to be wrong, to go, oh, shit, screwed this one up. Didn't realize that this is what, and, and having, again, like seeing it as a learning curve, seeing it as part of the journey. We're back to the yin and yang. Life is not supposed to be positive and magical and rainbows all the time. And I, I call it the white picket fence syndrome. My mother promised me a white picket fence, a German shepherd dog, two kids, and, and it hasn't, that would have been pretty limiting. Um, one of the times where it was to say yes and rather than contract is to trust Stephen and go back to Zimbabwe. You know, people said, well, what if this happens? Or what if he turns out to be whatever? Well, so what? To yeah. take, I, I, I never think of it as taking a risk. I think of it as responding to the opportunity. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. So that makes me want to jump ahead in the timeline a bit. For Stephen, I'm really curious why did you not try him coming to Canada or Cortez Island and seeing what that would be like to have him over here and, and to see how that rolled out? That has, I have thought of that so often, and there's probably two or three ways to respond to that is in the initial times when we were most, most engaged those years, I didn't have horses here and I didn't live with horses. So and I didn't want him to come over here with just nothing to do. And um, I think to be perfectly honest with you, I needed some years of coming to a place where I accepted him as is in my life here, which would have been hard to do in those early years for whether he would he be accepted how would how would he make out um it's because it's a very different experience and as i said in the book i wasn't interested in him just coming for a one-off visit mm -hmm. and i realized each time i would go that there wasn't enough common ground for oh. him for us to make a whole life together. I will say that in 2020, um, when I had, I, Omar and Raven became my horses in 2019. That's when I was in Africa. Um, the call came and I had to go into the wilderness and 
go, shall I do this? And the answer was yes, do it. Um, but at the, before the pandemic, we started the paperwork for him to come because I had horses. They were here where I live. And also here where I live, there's all sorts of other things that he could have done to help people because he's, he's a serving kind of person from fences to teaching people to ride, helping me care for my horses. And so we, I realized it's not for me to say no, this shouldn't happen, it's unrealistic. I need to put the ball in his court or give it back to the unseen, the ancestors, and see if it's meant to happen. And so I sent him all the paperwork to an email address of someone he knows because he doesn't email or he doesn't even text, he sends WhatsApp voice messages. And so then I had an email from Janine Varden, who's in the book. It was Varden Safaris that allowed me all this adventure saying, Stephen says you need a letter from us and that he's coming to visit. You know, he'll need time off work. What do you need us to say? And I wrote her back and said, um, I need you to say he has a job he has a leave for this amount of time. He has a family that he's responsible for, an elderly mother and grandchildren. And so his return, he's just coming as a visitor and is not going to turn around and try and, you know, land once he gets here. And at the very end of that email, I said, and if this COVID thing turns into anything, then this will be a moot point. A week later, I wrote her back and said, looks like nobody's going anywhere for the foreseeable future. So that's been through right up until this spring. So I am intending to return in January myself mm. and see, you know, not with this focus, we're going to do the paperwork and get him to come. But, okay, I can facilitate the paperwork. Let's, you know, shall we apply and see if, and then he could come back with me because I actually can't see how he would get from where he is to Vancouver himself. Yeah. Uh, it might sound patronizing, but he's never been on a plane yeah. or in those, and it would be so much fun to travel together. So let's check in in six months from now and see if he's here. Okay. So then that brings me to my other question about, so at the end of the book, you end with him introducing you to the new wife he's found that you told him to get. And oh, no, I didn't tell him. I said, now here's my, my wish for you. Yeah. Your desire, your yeah. desire for him, which again, mm -hmm. it's, again, that's what I love about the book is that it's so, it's so beautifully outside the box in terms of staying true to what is actually happening versus the boxes that society has given you and trying to fit inside them and make them work when none of them are authentic anymore. And I think that's why our divorce rate is so high because those boxes don't apply anymore and people have to create new realities. And, and that's what I see you're doing in the book. So you meet Faith, the new wife, um, at the at the very end of the book. And I'm absolutely fascinated to find out how did she respond to you? Because obviously you're going to be fine with her, but how was she with you? Well, I, I didn't know necessarily that I'd be fine with her. It depends how she was. 
True. We had the best time together, you know, the next a couple of days after meeting her that night and she's making dinner for us. Um, I go with her to get her hair done with all the other ladies in the it, it's a small, small town and the the curlers that try and get them a 1950s kind of bob hairdo and and later I'm like why don't you just cut your hair really short so we had some really fun times and I I have I'm not sure if it will go in the next book the sequel but perhaps I could post it on the book's website there's a hilarious story called Zimbabwe National Railway where we decide to take the train to Victoria Falls and I'll just say briefly uh, we wanted to do this f for a bit of a holiday, the overnight train. Well, if you drive from the safari camp, Miombo safari camp, uh, near Wangi main camp, uh, if you drive, it's about three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. On the train, it's 12 hours. Oh, it's supposed <laughs> to be eight, but it was 12 hours, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was completely hilarious. So we are in a, first of all, they didn't want Stephen to stay with Faith and I because we're two women and he's a gentleman. Oh. And she's like, you know, anyway, it's, I guess there, I might just put that extra story. And that then on the way back, they didn't want to sell us a return ticket all in the same compartment. So Stephen's in the upper berth faith is down here on the single berth and i'm at the bottom bunk here and there we are and i think i had you know when you um you do something you were speaking with about with integrity then it was perfectly fine for me and mostly it was her acceptance of me hmm. And his comfort of being with the two of us in these different, now different roles in his life. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you, I, I guess for, see, how is it in Zimbabwean culture? Is, is there sexual jealousy or is it more, more open for that? And, but I guess at the same time, she would have understood that that facet of your relationship with Stephen had come to an end or has it, I mean, how did the, all that, dynamic work. I was very careful during that that visit, those months that I was there. I, I didn't stay with them at their place. I had my own, you know, safari tent at the camp. I was very careful to be overly platonic with Stephen when we were together. So there would be no threat. I would say there's all kinds of sexual jealousy there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we won't go into the cultural thing about you know the main wife and the second wife and all of that okay gotcha that, that so may be part of the where I was in a different location making dinner by the cooking fire with the school principals in the village his wife and the women school teachers we're making the fire the guys are watching soccer by a tv with a generator in a hut the school principal and the teachers and she said to me his wife i want you for the second wife of my husband and i could have been flattered or i could have gone wow great way for me to get a longer stay in zimbabwe but they killed themselves laughing because i said 
I do not want to be someone's second wife. I don't even want to be someone's first wife. I want to be their only wife. And they killed themselves laughing. <laughs> For them, that was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's... And they, they, what they were laughing at was this is women's empowerment. We can ask for this. We can be the only wife and mm -hmm. we're going to stand up for that. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Cause I automatically went to the point of, you know, I mean, the reason for, for some women that I've talked to that they enjoy having other wives is the workload is so heavy. And the thought of being the only wife to have to do, because, you know, the gender roles are still quite divided. And in a lot of villages, the women are doing the lion's share of the labor, plus all the childbearing and cooking. So for them to, nobody wants to be a single wife because your life is hell. You have way too much work. So, but I guess that would be changing with industrialization and modernization. and Not in the village. True. <laughs> Although in... Zimbabwe, there the the main wife, the first wife lives somewhere, and the second wife lives somewhere else. So there's not it's oh. not sharing. Oh, interesting. See that I did not know. Right. That's very interesting. Not at all stratas of society. Huh. Wow. In my in what I know, I don't know everything. That's for sure. But in what I ex witnessed. Well, that reminds me in Muhammad Yunus's book about micro lending and when he first started the very first micro lending bank and he realized that if you lend to the males, they will go out and start a second family. Meanwhile, the first family still doesn't have education, shoes, mm -hmm. um, a weatherproof house, blah, blah, blah. But if you lend because that's the culture and that's the status, right. right? That's how a man in their in in many ethnic cultures expands himself and becomes bigger, right? Is to then have the second family, the second wife. And, and but meanwhile, the first ones are still at the poverty line. Mm. So he said what they quickly discovered is, and then the other thing that they discovered, and this was in India, was that the men would buy a new suit buy a new pair of shoes for themselves, um, start drinking more, socializing. So again, it wasn't filtering down to the children, but they said, when we lent to the women, the right. first thing that mother would do would be to feed her children, get them in school, clothe them, get a better dwelling that doesn't fall apart when it rains. And after all that was done, she would buy herself a new sari. Right. <laughs> right. So they quickly learned that if we want to bring up an economy and bring people out of poverty, they actually were biased. They would not loan to men. They discovered this very quickly. The lending would go to the women because then it would get to the children and it would go into the educational infrastructure and nutrition and, and, and instead of going into new clothes and a mistress and starting another family. So it's very, it's fascinating, right? Yeah, I could, I really am valuing your multicultural perspective and experience. True. Yeah. The more you, the more you've actually lived and seen these things in action, it, it's, yeah, it does. It, it opens to, 
to new perspectives. And I, I think there's no, there's no replacement for, for living in and among people like you did. Cause you just, how would you know what you've known and you share in this book other than sleeping on the ground in the villages? And I do think that being with Stephen brought me into that in a different way than I'd, if I'd just been there without that um, relationship. That is so true. That's so true. Like if you just come in as, oh, I want to vi visit your village or I want to get to know, or maybe even as a friend. Yeah, it wouldn't, it would have, you would have had a completely different experience, but you came in as one of their own saying, this is one of my own. And mm. that, yeah, such a different experience. Speaking of the COVID thing that happened, I found it so interesting. You're talking on page 88 um, about what happened as so often happened in Africa when colonialism was destroyed and the local government comes to power, except that the local government is not skilled not experienced with wielding power and often corrupt themselves. <laughs> and then the economy is destroyed and the people who are the foundations of the economy, whether it's good or bad that they're white or brown, they were the underpinning of the economy and the new government wipes them out wholesale and plunges the country into just poverty and disaster. So, but what was striking to me here is your description of the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe in 2008. Um, and Janine is telling you this, paper banknotes stuffed into a shopping bag were barely enough to purchase a loaf of bread, she says, shaking her head and laughing. And even at that, shelves were mostly bare in the food shops, no petrol at the pumps, no wages paid, and erratic days-long electricity outages. One quarter of our population left the country. That right now is many people's worst fear in the Western world. Interesting, isn't it? Right? Like, what is everyone talking about? Food shortages, no electricity. Germany's told everyone, go buy wood stoves. You're not going to have enough electricity to heat your wood homes in the winter. Oh, good. Go buy wood so you can burn what's left of the trees. Oh, that's really going to benefit the climate. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then, and it's kind of a, a nice perspective to go, this is everyone's worst nightmare right now. But Zimbabwe's already lived this just in 2008. Well, and it's come around again because in 2009 or 2008, the US dollar came in. So most of the time I was there, um, the, the currency was US dollars, but now it's, it's gone back to hyperinflation. It's you know, it's as almost as dismal as it was then. And when I was researching the book, because as you know, when you're researching a, a book, there's so much more that goes into it that doesn't actually wind up on the page. But I found that the remittances from the diaspora, which is money that Zimbabweans abroad send home to their families, is bigger than the gross national product of the country of Zimbabwe. Why does that not surprise me? And I've, I've looked, I, you know, I read that in my research. And then when I went back, maybe, you know, a year or two after this story, 
And so I thought, why are there all these new cars in Harare? Right. Because the relatives abroad are sending the money home. Yes. And I've, you know, read about how difficult that is for Zimbabweans abroad, whether they're in North America or the UK or Germany, the, the pressure and the sense of responsibility and the working two and three jobs to support the family back home. Yeah. And you kind of wonder that that's so open to abuse of, you know, okay, so now you have the family back home driving a new car. Meanwhile, the person in England is working three jobs. Like, this is like, what's wrong with this picture? Well, I don't know. If I can't say that that's the direct correlate. True, true, true. Um, but I think there's, there's um, a pride element involved there. I know from the Filipino culture where you have um, the Philippines, Filipino women leaving to work as maids and housekeepers in other countries and earning at that rate sending all the money home, the, the, the standard is the money they send home is used to purchase a family home on a piece of land, brand new appliances, um, just kind of raising that whole basically middle-class standard of living. And so the person who's, you know, working away isolated from all her family in whatever country she's in, whether it's Canada or Dubai or Singapore, takes a great pride in what she's building up for herself and her home country for when she returns. Right. And then she returns and, but, and if she comes for visits, her status is greatly elevated because in a village where everyone else is in poverty, her family has a brand new house with a washing machine. And so there's a payback on the other side too. So even though, you know, she's working in Singapore, living in an eight by 10 closet, she's got a four bedroom home waiting for her in the Philippines. And when she retires, that's her legacy. So, you know, you kind of have to take both of them. Okay. I want to jump ahead to page 107 and you're talking with James about safari clients who are coming to experience what wild Africa has to give um, he goes on to tell us about safari clients on riverbanks in the evening who confess an ineptitude for happiness and find their internal compass recalibrated by time in raw, unexpurgated nature. One client, now friend, returned to America and initiated a philanthropic foundation out of the compassion which seized her, deeply infiltrated her by sleeping on the earth and waking disarmed in this natural state. Some wilderness outfitters declare in their promotion, our safaris change lives. Not quite the truth for James who offers integrity, not promises. Yes, it can happen, he says, but not as a marketing ploy. In the soft focus of firelight, a more apt tagline occurs to me. Our African safaris bring you to life, wildlife. That's what is happening to me from the inside out. Can you contrast what's different between that experience and all your experiences that you've had with horses in the transformative connection space? I think it's the qualitatively, it's the same thing. Mm. You have those experiences. The difference would be that I, uh, I'm, I spent longer stretches of time in the wilderness in that state. 
Mm. With the horses here, say, then you'd have that experiences for a couple of hours, a day, a week, and then we'd we'd be in life here again. So that was the difference. Same quality, but just sustained over a longer period of time, which then allows that disarming that that as you described it to happen when there isn't enough time it doesn't happen or if it's just instantaneous perhaps it could change someone's life but as we were talking before about the body it just infiltrates your cells in a way and so i think the time spent in the wild is is what is the difference is there a difference between the wild and then the domestication of horses because there you're with wild animals and usually when you're with horses in Canada or wherever you're with domesticated horses. Well, when you're in the wild, there's a vigilance and a kind of hyper attentiveness mm -hmm. that when I came back here, it just seemed so mundane. Although sometimes on Cortez, there'll be wolves or cougars, but without the, that, um, alive um, potential where you need to be vigilant and have your just be very tuned in which in my case you trust the guides and the people that you're with um, that would be the difference so it's just a state to be in there I can imagine kind of radically alive because life is it can be life or death, you know, if you come across a um, the strewn open body of an antelope and are there lions nearby here? Or, oops, behind that stand of trees over there, there's some Cape buffalo and we need to retreat and not go close to them. So that's different than, I mean, I haven't spent time up where there's bears and, and, you know, for extended periods of time. And even if I had, it would have been with guides as well. Yes. Well, and it's kind of ironic. You're going to a, a place where there's serious predators and you're riding a prey animal. Exactly. <laughs> Here, let me ride a zebra into the lion pack. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole proposition for me, I'm like, um, I'm not sure how I would feel about that. But like you said, you're going with guides. They, it's, it's, it seemed to me that they had obviously through years and years, decades of experience, there's some rules that happen and some understanding. And as long as, you know, you, you are aware of those and you kind of stick to them. Um, well, here's, I, you can remind me if I included this in the book, I may have when my son came the year that he came and we were at the copy tops camp and Douglas Chinamo's wife came walking through the bush and she was pregnant and she was with her sister who had twins. So each of them had a twin baby on their back and they were barefoot and they had just walked for three hours to come and say hello to Douglas. And so Devin, my son, who's, you know, almost six feet tall, you know, um, they stayed for, I don't know, probably a day or two. And he said, I'm going to 
let me walk back with them as far as I know the way. <clears throat> and then I'll just come back myself. <clears throat> and Douglas just looked at him and said, no. And Devin went, why not? There's a barefoot, pregnant, baby-carrying women, and I'm robust and, and everything. And, and Douglas just shook his head and said, yes, but you can't feel in your feet if there's an elephant off in the distance. You can't hear the change in the insects that they can hear that says something is happening. You, you just don't know how to walk in the bush. It has nothing to do with your, he didn't say perceived strength, but it was, I think that really shifted my son in a way that is still with him. Oh, you know, that is not in the book, but it should be. <laughs> that is, that is, that is it. That is everything. And what your, several of your questions and your own stories remind me that just a while ago, I was speaking with a friend. She was actually was one of the proofreaders for the book. And she said, were you aware that this is a story of women's empowerment? What happens when a woman says yes, takes a leap, mm -hmm. follows her own guidance, and then where a younger man is put in his place by another younger man about the reality of, no, you don't know, but these young women know. Yeah, these supposedly, I mean, you couldn't get higher risk than a pregnant woman and a woman with two kids. I mean, hello, you know, but they, like he said, they are, it's about those rules of engagement. They know what they are. They know what all the signs are. They know what it, it reminds me. Um, I was in Mexico in a more remote area and the stingrays would always come in close to the shore. And I really, it's, I didn't not just want to get stung. I didn't want to step on them. So I entered the water and I just connected and I said, okay, I'm here. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to step on you and I don't want to be stung. Can you tell me what to do or tell me where you are? And very quickly, um, the sting, stingray said, well, first of all, change the way you walk. Put, your, put the ball of your foot down first, not your heel. I was like, ah. Oh. Perfect. Cause then if I have, I can immediately pull and like, you know, put your, they sent me a picture of me putting my, the ball of my foot down gingerly so that if something moved, I could pull it right back again. And as soon as I was like, Oh yes, perfect. Then they started sending me pictures. I'm here. And I looked down and just like a foot to the right of me. And then when it said, I'm here, it just moved a little bit. I was like, Oh, there you are. And then the next one was like, and I'm here and I'm here. And they all told me where they were. Meanwhile, I'm walking in the way they've told me to walk. And then the other interesting thing is that all these fish came out of nowhere and were gathering around me. And I went, oh my God, I wasn't talking to the fish. I was just talking to the stingray. But when you connect to one, you connect to them all, especially in water, which is a superconductor for all things mm -hmm. energetic, right? Electricity and water. And I, it was just like this, this thing of, wow. It's, it's just requires just even that little bit of awareness. And then you're plugged into this big network that then comes forward and is communicating with you. And, you know, and that's the same thing that's happening up here. You know, people are like, you're on 160 acres of wilderness surrounded by crown land. We have bears, we have wolves, we have tons of cougars, 
Um, and they're like, you got to get a gun. And I'm like, no, I mean, not that I'm again, I was a kid. I went to summer camp. I did riflery and archery every year. I'm not against guns, but that's not the energy I want to go out on my land with. I want to go out like I went with the stingrays and mm -hmm. say, I am here. Tell me what I need to know, because there's no animal that wants to engage with a human. We're incredibly vengeful and we will kill them. And they know that. So they want peace. Is part of your plan where you are at the Singing Horse Ranch is to invite people there and to experience that way of being? I have my ideas for what I thought would happen here. <laughs> Who knows? And none of them have worked out. In fact, they've quite spectacularly blown up and disintegrated. Yeah. So now I'm like, okay, I'm here. I, what my sense right now is that the land and the beings and all the elemental energies here have to calibrate and enmesh with me first. And then what, because it's not about what I want. It's about what does the land, the horses, exactly. like the elemental beings, like what does everybody want for this space? And right now, all they want me to do is fix all the damage that's been done. Right. Physically and energetically on this land. So that's I would Right. I would rephrase the question to, are you getting the sense that the land and the creatures there would like other people to have the experience of what it's like to be relational with them. And you're saying certainly not yet, if at all. No, not yet. They, they've no. slammed the door, but this herd, the singing horse herd has always wanted to work with two groups of people. They've been absolutely crystal clear on that. The first group is youth. Right. They tell me that the point of change for humanity lies with the youth because they haven't been disappointed and smacked down enough. And number two, the hormones of puberty are like a turbo booster that blasts them through trauma, whether generational or from everyone has trauma from their childhood in these cultures. Um, and the, the hormones of the turbo booster. And so the horses are like, when we can work with youth, we can actually assist them in making the transformation, the shift in consciousness in a fraction of the time that it will take an adult. Right. So that's the first group they're really interested in. The second group they are always interested is they want to work with the human teachers, leaders, masters. Right because each person that is already at a level of mastery in their human practice, whatever that is, whether it's tarot or um, counseling or you know whatever, that person has how many hundreds of people that sit underneath them and will be then part of their downflow out to those people. More impact, or, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So those are the two groups that the horses have already shown me that they, and so then I think it's just a matter of, well, how is that going to take place? When, what form will it take? <laughs> right. And that's what I'm waiting for guidance on. Right. And also who, who is going to lead those? Because I know it's not me. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had guidance very in my twenties. I had guidance not to work one-on-one -on -one or directly with people. My thing that I've been very strongly guided to stay in is the digital, digital dissemination piece. So I have online workshops and I have an online apprenticeship program with the herd, but I don't 
I'm not the one running the work. I've been guided very strongly not to do that. Right. So right. those, the people who are going to be running those offerings have to also, I guess, be prepared and come forward. Right. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at with that. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Now I have another question about elephants. Elephants are very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. You say, so you're at, a, I believe, an elephant sanctuary at this point on page 155. And you say, we passed the afternoon keeping track of the girls in the bush. So you're talking about the female elephants. So they don't break through the electric fences, which they can cleverly do by putting a log or a big stick against the fence to lower it to the ground. So they don't get shocked by the live wire as they walk over I, I was, cause I've been, I've had elephants appear to me already. Tell me that they're mine and that that's happening and they're waiting for me and I don't need to do anything. So then I was like, elephants, like, oh, like 11 wild horses has just pushed me past my limits. What am I going to, so I started reading a ton of books on the logistics of elephant care and management and the electric fence seemed to be the gold standard. And like, <laughs> this is the only thing. Other than like, and even if you've got the traditional Bulma with the huge timbers, you know, you still yeah. need electric fences back up. And then I read this and they're like, they figured it out. They figured out how to ground and disable the electric fence. Uh-huh. And I, so how are they keeping their elephants from, you know, because the big problem all over Africa is the elephants going into farmers' crops. Right and raid and then creating you know a lot of anger and fear in the communities which then makes people want to kill them and it's huge hey um teresa's the farm where though the ranch where those elephants were those were three rescued elephants it was not a formal sanctuary as but you know i can't think back to what the very big perimeter fencing was mm-hmm. um but in res- uh, response to your question, in a different part of Zimbabwe, uh, near Wangi, is an organization which grew from the ground up called Soft Foot Alliance. Oh, and their yeah. logo is beautiful because it shows a, 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 I'm not sure if it's a human footprint or um, a, a primate footprint where each of the toes is a different soft-footed animal Mm. or I'll have to look it up but there's the elephant you know all of the soft-footed ones not the cloven hoofed ones the ones with Mm. paws and so which includes humans so how do all the soft-footed ones um Alliance, How? what is the alliance? Now, I don't know if this is current, but at the time when I was first aware of that and, and visiting with those friends, there were um, beehives put along the perimeter fencing mm. because elephants do not want bees in their trunks. Oh, that's brilliant. And then there's um, hot cayenne pepper along the perimeter. Okay. And... Um, I did an interview, I haven't yet put it somewhere, with um, a conservation officer, wildlife guide, who was part of training the guides. This was the last time I was there in the southern part of Wangi. And 
we did an in, I interviewed him about the the interface between the animals and the communities and and the lions that are going to attack the cattle and then the you know the village will want to kill the lions or the elephants that would trample the crops so there are ways I can't speak to them just this minute that people are working to bring an alliance of this sort but mm-hmm. it's huge. And I think I said at one point in the book, which we all know is the biggest thing is there are more humans taking up more land. Yeah. That means less habitat for animals. Yes. And when I went one year to uh, back to Maviradona and rode into the wilderness with Douglas and we're looking at these beautiful hillsides gorgeous hillsides that Mm. were formerly grassland with forest on the top and there were like little homesteads sprung up like mushrooms like huts a hut a imba and then a a corral for a few animals the maize plot and what happened he said well the old ones are not dying off as they used to and all the younger ones are getting married and everyone wants their own homestead. So they're just, that's what's right. happening. It's just what's happening here in Canada, pretty yeah. much everywhere. There's more people than the land can support as it is. That's the thing. It's, it's as things are, you know, currently. Yes. And that's a whole other topic. Yes. And, um, I'm not going to get into it. I do want to touch really briefly, though, about you go into it. Part of your um, decision making over how to use the money that you have um, and gifting it or using it to help people on page 271, you tell a story about Tafadzwa, my Zimbabwean musician friend in Canada, had counseled against a borehole and water pump because neighboring communities who didn't have one would come. First of all, there may not be enough water for all who wanted it, especially in the dry season, and it would put Stephen's family in the unfortunate position of having to keep watch on the borehole and turn people away, neither of which is desirable nor culturally acceptable. Secondly, that investment wouldn't generate any income from the family. For the family, water is not a commodity to be purchased in that setting. So Tafadzwa recommended I invest in something that would contribute to the livelihood of Stephen's family. I think that one example is so perfect for encapsulating the essence of the problem of foreign aid, (laughs) right? The lack of understanding of how everything works down to the minutia Mm -hmm. and just giving or going, well, clean water, blah, 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 blah. And then now you've created a massive problem um, and, and a lot of difficulty and a lot of strife. But if you, as you did, you were talking to people from the village who know all the people and asking them, what do I give? How should I give? Imagine if, if everybody did that from foreign aid to NGOs to, and I know some of them do, but I, I love that story in the way it just really hard hitting 
very specific uh, way very of specific. Right. Yeah, that that this is <clears throat> this is a big part of the problem with with foreign aid and the way it's delivered and allocated and all the rest of it. So um and and I love your story too about how you handled that whole thing about money and then gifting it and being willing to let it go no matter if it was used well or right a gift you you just let go of then what actually becomes of that gift yeah. right yeah yeah exactly um i is there anything that like when you when someone reads this book what's your heart's desire that you would in a perfect world if you could say everyone who reads this book this is what they're going to take or this is what the book will help them or facilitate or open them to for you what would that be it would be um i think it's in the section called the spirit house but i've since met other shikiro it would be that sense of no separation mm. no distinction there's no them over there those people over there whether it's in our neighborhood or across the world you know as as part of that story where a white person had communicated well they don't have the same sentiments that we do was so shocking to me so this story conveys that we're all from the in this human family yes there are you know there are <laughs> the, what might be called evil people in the world however if we're practicing you know compassion or intending to be aware that's what that this could be any one of us having this experience i think that's why i wanted it to be so that people would read it and feel as if they were there with me i think that's what i would hope as if they are there with me i think that comes through loud and strong and mm -hmm. i really i think everyone who reads this is going to have such a different understanding of everything involved all the all the threads that are woven throughout your story and you've you've described them in a way like i said with the authenticity necessary for us to feel that we were there and we had you know some connection to all these experiences that are in here and uh thank you so much for this beautiful gift orian and if anybody would like to learn more about orian either her tarot or her books and her other books um you can go to orianlee.com that's o r i a n e l e e.com thank you orian for sharing this wonderful time and this wonderful book with us thank you jenny i loved your questions and the way that you really you know digested the story in the book so it's very gratifying as a writer to have you as a reader and then to have the conversation thank you awesome you're so welcome Thank you.